0: Understanding China.
1: In fact, there's been successive waves of crackdowns both on Chinese citizens in China as well as efforts to harass, intimidate, even kidnap foreign nationals.
2: Tech diplomacy. The level of understanding of policymakers and the understanding of technology that technologists have, that delta has grown so quickly over time that we started to feel that it was almost insurmountable.
0: Climate security in the Middle East.
3: We now have the opportunity to rehabilitate this river and bring back not only the biodiversity, 50% of the biodiversity that was lost, but also create new economic opportunities for the people of the valley, Palestinian, Jordanian, and Israeli,
0: This is Policy, Guns and Money, the ASPE podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. To start off this episode, Fergus Ryan speaks to China expert Joanna Chu about her new book, China Unbound, a new world disorder. They discuss the changing attitudes towards China in Western countries and the importance of developing China research expertise.
4: So, Joanna, before taking on your role as a senior journalist at the Toronto Star, you did on-the-ground reporting in Beijing, in China, in Hong Kong for seven years, and that's reflected in your book, where you're able to write about your first-hand experience, whether that's in underground churches in Beijing or wandering down the halls of the hospital where Liu Xiaobo was being treated, and even seeing the personal dynamic between Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin up close. But your book is called China Unbound, A New World Disorder. And in large part, it focuses on China's role in the world. You write about case studies in Russia, Turkey, Canada, Greece and Italy. How are these countries, particularly, you know, these sort of middle power countries, dealing with the opportunities and challenges that come with dealing with China under Xi Jinping?
1: Yeah, thank you so much and thanks Fergus for being an early supporter and reader of the book. I really appreciate it. Thanks for pointing out as well that the subtitle is New World Disorder. So that refers not to Beijing's unilateral actions creating, you know, chaos in the world, but really it it looks at examining Western complicity, how decades of willful misinterpretation or just ignoring of different dimensions uh, to do with China, China's political system, its human rights record, have over time become, I argue, a complicity in the toxic diplomacy, human rights abuses and foreign interference uh, Beijing engages in today. So for a long time, you know, people like Bill Clinton were saying, you know, China joining the World Trade Organization, China becoming a bigger player in the world. That will naturally mean China will turn into a more liberal direction, basically implying that China will become a democracy just like us. But, you know, Chinese leaders never made that commitment Consistently, in the last several decades, indeed, since, you know, CCP came to power, human rights has not been a top concern. In fact, there's been successive waves of crackdowns, both on Chinese citizens in China, as well as efforts to harass, intimidate, even kidnap foreign nationals all over the world. But I argue that up until recently, the people who suffered the most were people of Chinese descent people like me, the Chinese diaspora, were reporting things like they were getting physical visits, living in Canada, living in Australia. In Canada, I think it took uh, the Meng Wanzhou issue, the Huawei issue, where the two Michaels were taken as political hostages, for a lot of Canadians to kind of wake up to some of the complexities and to feel that, okay, China is growing authoritarianism, it might affect me, it might affect people like me, basically, the mainstream you know, white Canadians. People were actually saying things to me in my interviews that I didn't know there were these issues happening in the past, but I felt that the two Michaels were relatable. I went to Australia for reporting, and just as um, this case was breaking, and Australians also told me that I relate to people like Michael Kovrig who were working in China. So really, it has been only recently that people felt an urgency to talk about China human rights and China's political system and China's willingness to use political hostage-taking as a tactic. When in the past, I've reported on, for example, the forgotten Canadians detained in China, people like Hussein Salil, who have been in Chinese prison for over 15 years. But his name is not a common household name. People don't know about his case. In Australia... Would you say that the average person knows about writer Yang Hongjun, who has been detained in China for several years, and he is an Australian national?
4: Yeah, uh, it's an interesting question. I mean, just after your book came out, um, the two Michaels, Kovrigan and were released. But meanwhile, as you say, Yang Jun and Lei, both Australians, they remain in detention. So... What do you think the strategy should be with them? What do you think their chances of of being released are? And why were the Michaels released while these two remain in Mm -hmm. detention?
1: Yeah. So in my book, I talk about this idea that Beijing has been promoting that anyone, any type of Chinese descent or background are essentially Chinese. And they're basically more like fair game compared to foreigners who aren't Chinese. And that has been kind of a very toxic narrative that people around the world in the West have accepted as valid. So, you know, the racism and xenophobia we see in so many Western countries that I profile in China Unbound plays into this narrative, where if you don't really accept immigrants as part of your society, then that opens up their extra vulnerability. In Canada, I know that basically the government, it was a major foreign policy focus to try to get them out. And it was basically part of every conversation the administration had of China. But the criticism is that this has not been the case for Canadians, Australians, others of non-white descent who had received similar treatment. So it is a kind of harmful complicity that the book is trying to look at. It's also looking at the kind of wasted resources among the international diaspora, where there is, including in the U.S., systemic exclusion of the voices and expertise of Chinese Americans, kind of a casting of suspicion over them, whether their loyalties are to Beijing or, or to elsewhere that affects the type of dialogue we have today. So I really traveled around in Australia speaking with current and former politicians. They admit that, you know, five years ago, seven years ago, before the climate shifted and we had the raft of anti-foreign interference laws, their mandate or goal with China was to expand trade and economic ties as much as possible. And that was really the focus, the narrow focus. And I think because it has been so recent, uh, countries that have introduced some changes in recent years don't really have the right to look at other countries I profiled, like Greece and Italy, where it's at a stage where still the focus is what can we get, what can we gain economically from China? It was very interesting because I would speak with leading business people who actually help shape their country's policies. Uh, Greece, Italy, and Turkey. And they admit that they don't think kind of these wider issues like politics, human rights are relevant to them. They think that they don't really care where potential investment deals come from, as long as money is flowing into the country. And it's really interesting, because It's not as if they are completely oblivious to all these conversations. They say they're acting pragmatically to really focus on what they should do, what they can get. But what's interesting is that they really overestimate what they can gain from China, what they could lose by being more critical. So Athens, twice vetoing a human rights criticism of China at the UN, that was very stark and it was seen as a potential proactive way to express gratitude For Chinese state owned businesses pouring in funding, including taking over the port of Piraeus and really kind of turning over the productivity of that port. It also comes in a context where, in different places, there's increasing support of what China professes to do to change the current world order. Beijing, like in state council papers, is really upfront about how it thinks it's healthy for China to rise as a alternative superpower to the US, that it shouldn't be a unipolar world where the US dominates and is hegemonic, but it's right and will benefit other countries for China to also be a superpower. And that is very compelling. I spoke with people in Italy who say, yes, I know that working in China, we are actively self-censoring our products. But we're also cheering on Xi Jinping, cheering on Beijing because we hate Trump more basically than we care about, you know, the human rights issues and the fact that we need to self-censor to access the China market. So I really try to include that nuance and on ground flavor of the reality in different Western countries' attitudes and changing attitudes to China because I think that kind of nuance is often missing in some of these conversations, as well as emphasizing the stakes for people of Chinese descent. Because again, for decades, they've been the ones who tend to suffer the most for, you know, trying to speak out about China related issues.
4: Yeah, there seems to be almost a sort of lack of curiosity about modern China in many of these middle powers that you look at and some of the individuals particularly in business community who have this very mercenary approach to China where do you see that going are there any sort of countervailing forces inside those countries do they have a core of capable China analysts and you know the Chinese diaspora is that something that can be tapped into to sort of push forward their understanding of China and the country that they're dealing
1: Mm -hmm. with the answer basically is no. And you'd be surprised that the problem of lack of China expertise is not just an issue in smaller countries or countries that might be economically struggling, but is the case basically in many places, even in the US, even in Australia, places with some of you know the world's top academics on China. An issue is that Often, people who are informed about aspects of China that aren't to do with the trade or economy don't really have opportunities to advise government on policymaking. In some cases, academics around the world told me that they felt it wasn't their role to contribute, that it might be seen as interfering, and that they should leave it to their counterparts in China to raise these issues. But a lot have expressed regret since then, as, you know, the crackdowns so- of civil society has gone worse in China, that actually their colleagues in China are pretty much universally silenced on these issues. And I'm working on, you know, a follow up on the issues under the Biden administration. And it continues where people who actually, regardless of their ethnicity, whether they have any family in China, if they've spent time in China, if they spent any time living in China or have... You know, good friends and connections, because they're deemed a potential security threat. They also lack access to these opportunities to directly shape government policies. So let alone a place like Greece, where people say that in order to study China, they had to leave the country to go to the UK, for example, to get a degree, where structurally there are no postgraduate opportunities to study China. And Speaking with people in Australia, that's again an issue where instead of you would think that with all the increase in media attention on China, there would be an expansion of opportunities to study Chinese or to take courses on Chinese history or politics in universities. But in fact, it's been the opposite. Such courses have been basically being removed or shrinking. It's not expanding. So I think we risk getting into a climate where Really simple sound bites about China prevail because there isn't that like deep pool of knowledge, and you know people who do have the knowledge don't have opportunities to be more influential. So we see potential risk where actually people with the most simplistic views on China tend to get the most airtime. It's as if the misinformation that Beijing produces is mirrored in the west even though outside of China there are tend to be much more opportunities for access to information and greater freedom of the press but the disinformation we see all around the world in China is another factor in some of kind of like the disorderly chaotic dynamics we see today
4: well in a world awash with disinformation and simplistic notions of how to understand China, I'd I'd recommend all listeners go straight to Joanna's book called China Unbound, A New World Disorder, available at all good bookstores. So thank you, Joanna, today for talking about your book and congratulations.
1: Thanks so much for having me on. It's so hard to delve into all of this in a quick discussion. So it's it's really great that you do this ongoing work on, on China issues. And I love the research you produce personally so keep it up and <laughs> thanks for getting, for your support critical and emerging
0: technologies are quickly becoming a focus area of geopolitical competition carly winkler speaks to the honorable bonnie glick about the newly established center for tech diplomacy and the links between technology advances and national interests
5: So the Centre for Tech Diplomacy at Purdue is an independent think tank at the intersection of technology and US foreign policy. Through its connection with Purdue University, the centre brings deep expertise to studies and events about tech diplomacy and provides training of technology knowledge to foreign policymakers. I am delighted to be here today with the Honourable Bonnie Glick, former Deputy Administrator of the United States Agency for International Development and the Centre for Tech Diplomacy's inaugural director. Bonnie, welcome, and thank you so much for being here.
2: Carly, thank you so much. We are so excited to be talking with you today. So let's
5: jump right into it. We've been having a number of discussions here in Australia with government and industry on our technical partnerships with the US and others under AUKUS and the Quad, but particularly about how the tech community can provide better support to decision makers as they negotiate on these highly technical issues and topics like supply chain vulnerability. But at Purdue, you've set up a think tank, a tech tank, focused on how to bring tech and policy together. Tell us about the center and why this topic of technology diplomacy is so important.
2: Carly, it's such a great question. And as you probably know, the terms technology and diplomacy are not terms that you usually hear in a sentence together. And you definitely don't hear them one right after the other we thought about it over the course of time. And believe me, during the COVID pandemic, everybody had a lot of time to think about things that we could improve on. And one of the areas that we thought was ripe for improvement was how we as a country and how we jointly with our allies could bring to the fore the cutting edge technologies in a way that was understandable and digestible to foreign policymakers, and to our lawmakers. When you think about the people who are focusing on technology, really you're thinking about people who generally have social sciences or liberal arts backgrounds. You're not necessarily thinking about people who have advanced degrees in chemical engineering or hypersonic technology or biomedical engineering. Those don't tend to be the people who become policymakers. And the delta that has grown between the level of understanding of policymakers and the understanding of technology that technologists have, that delta has grown so quickly over time that we started to feel that it was almost insurmountable, and yet for policymakers and diplomats to be able to represent their countries to allies around the world, as well as to the American population itself, they had to have a better understanding and an ability to converse about cutting edge and emerging technologies. So we set up this tech tank. I like that you're using our language. (laughs) In Washington, D.C., there is no shortage of think tanks that generate a lot of policy papers and recommendations. And we're doing that as well, making recommendations to policymakers about what the United States should do vis-a-vis our allies as it relates to, as you rightfully noted, things like manufacturing, supply chain, logistics, pharmaceuticals, how do you expand the aperture of what is available to consumers in free countries, but also things like semiconductors, why is there a chip shortage, explaining to policymakers what that actually means, what are microprocessors? What is a semiconductor? Why is it important? But then also to the next level of quantum computing and next generation computing capabilities. These are things that they're writing legislation about to ensure that the United States remains competitive in the technology landscape and that the United States is able to continue as a leader in the world to advance technology and to advance technology for freedom. And that's really what we focus on is ensuring that those skill sets are translatable and then delivered. Yeah,
5: that's fantastic. And I love that you point out that there is an importance for writing policy papers, but also a real importance for those practical advice on particular problems that we're facing. So let's walk through that particular case that is so highly topical at the moment, semiconductor fabrication. Now, I understand from you and the great work Purdue's done on sharing information about this, that there are only four countries which produce the world supply of semiconductors And three of those are here in the Indo-Pacific with Taiwan, South Korea, and China, and then, of course, the United States. And of course, if we have no chips, we have no tech. So how is the center working with the US government to shore up that global supply?
2: The thing that's really neat is that the world of technology has come really to the kitchen table of consumers around the world in a way that, isn't necessarily of their choosing but it has been made very clear to people around the world that things don't appear magically. And what we see is that the fabrication capabilities and capacity around the world have been diverted due to COVID. And so when the world is hit with a global pandemic there is an immediate need that is realized that work has to continue, education has to continue, and it's all going to migrate into our basements. And because we're all sitting in our basements with our children, all learning and all participating in video conference calls, the semiconductor industry pivoted and started making semiconductors and chips for electronic equipment in greater numbers, diverting the manufacturer away from things like the chips that go into car manufacturing or avionics. None of that was needed because nobody could go anywhere. So if, <laughs>
5: that's a great. Yeah. Point. If
2: you're sitting in your basement and all you need is a computer or a tablet You're not thinking about getting to go to work and getting to send your children to school. Lo and behold, we have the miraculous creation of vaccines that have, again, transformed the world and allowed us to leave our basements. And you can't leave your basement if you don't have anywhere to go. And if there aren't any cars being manufactured or there's a back order on the manufacture of aircraft because the semiconductors that were supposed to be manufactured for cars have been diverted to tablets, that's when we had this supply chain logjam. in very simple terms, but that's the reality. And so the other point that you raised, Carly, that's so important is that semiconductor manufacturing can't just be stood up anywhere. And certainly at a large scale, it cannot be stood up anywhere at any time. It's not like you're putting up a tent and selling organic produce at the side of the road. You're talking about multi-billions of dollars of investment that go into the creation of a semiconductor fabrication facility. And they require years of planning. What the world has done during COVID is we've sped up that calendar for the deployment and the buildup of semiconductor manufacturing. but. You point out correctly that really there are only four countries that have large-scale capacity for this manufacture. Three are in the Indo-Pacific. One is the People's Republic of China, whose microelectronics and chips are now no longer accepted into the United States because of the nature of the regime of Xi Jinping. So that cuts off a big source of supply, and it has to be made up elsewhere. And that's what industry is working on. Simultaneously, industry is working on creating the next generation of chips so that they're faster and they have more ability to do more things so that you can rejigger your fabrication facilities to manufacture the next generation of chips. So that's a great
5: question. With with the next generation of chips and looking towards um, quantum chipsets, how well established are we at manufacturing those kinds of chips? Is does that have the same kind of problem that existing semiconductor fabrication has?
2: Times an exponential factor is the same kinds of problems because we're building the plane and putting on the wings at the same time when it comes to quantum computing there are only a very small handful of companies in the world that have the resources to deploy toward r&d around quantum computing and quantum chipsets once they are live and widely deployed they're going to change the face of computing completely but this is in the nascent stages and The same companies that are developing the next generation of microelectronics are also simultaneously trying to help with the manufacture and distribution of the chips that are needed for the day-to-day manufacturing processes around the world. So they've got two big loads that they're carrying at the same time and having to make determinations. From a business perspective, of where they invest the most time and the most resources.
5: Oh, Bonnie, this is so interesting. I could talk about it all day. We're nearly out of time, but if I could just give you one last uh-huh. question. Under AUKUS, we've agreed to collaborate on cyber operations, on AI, on quantum. That's a really wide set of technologies, and there's a lot going on there. Everything from like ethics and standards, um, sharing and management of sensitive data, the gory details of the tech itself. Do you have thoughts on which threads to pull, like which areas to focus on what we could do together?
2: AUKUS, I think, is one of the most amazing breakthroughs in allied defense technology in history. Honestly, the partnership between our three countries, Australia, the UK and the United States, demonstrates bonds that tell the world a very important story, which is that democracies band together. And I know that there were hiccups along the way, and those over the course of time will work themselves out and they'll work themselves out collaboratively because it's in the interests of all countries involved. So I think AUKUS as an event opens up the door to so many more future events that will be focused on every one of those technologies, Carly, that you mentioned. But then the collaboration that will become second nature across our countries and across allied countries, the collaboration in emerging technology research and development is just going to become second nature and natural. And to have our countries demonstrating to the world that collaboration is the formula to follow it's in the national security interests of all of us. I think that sends a tremendous signal to the world as it relates to emerging technologies, some of which we know about now and some of which we're just going to wait and see into the future.
5: That's fantastic. Look, thank you so much for your time today. It's such an interesting discussion. Bonnie Glick, thank you so much.
2: Finally,
0: Anastasia Kapetis speaks to Giddon Bromberg about climate and security in the Middle East. They discuss the Green-Blue Deal concept and climate progress in the region.
6: Welcome, Gideon Bromberg, and thank you for joining us today to talk about the impacts of climate change on the security outlook in the Middle East and what can be perhaps done to minimise some of these pretty dire impacts. You're the Israel lead for an organisation called EcoPeace that's been pursuing environmental approaches to peace building and security in the Middle East for at least a couple of decades. Can you tell us about a little bit about the organization and your green blue deal concept that EcoPeace has been developing over the last few years?
3: So thank you very much, Anastasia. EcoPeace is truly a unique organization. It's the only organization of its kind that brings together Palestinian, Jordanian and Israeli environmentalists. The green blue deal is an out of the box concept that is trying to meet the challenge of the climate crisis for our region in a manner that promotes cooperation that perhaps the political process hasn't been able to advance, particularly the Israeli-Palestinian political process. The Green-Blue Deal is made up of four pillars, and those pillars speak to solutions that relate to both climate mitigation and climate adaptation for our region. The first pillar is based on a much earlier study of the organization that was proposing a water energy exchange and it looks to the comparative advantages of our various countries to see, for instance, it researched whether Jordan could be a regional leader in the production of renewable energies because of its vast desert areas in close proximity to the population centres of Israel, Palestine and Jordan. And on the other hand, looking to the Mediterranean, both on the Israeli and Palestinian coasts, as the resource where additional manufactured water could be produced through desalination that could provide water security, again, for all three peoples. The concept was really formed around the lessons of Europe after World War II and the idea of the coal and steel agreement, where, you are know, starting off with Germany, and France, the idea was, you know, the two most important natural resources of the European continent, coal and steel, would require cooperation in order to prevent further warfare. And we thought deeply, well, what's the coal and the steel of the Levant? And we quickly came to the conclusion that it's harnessing the sun and the sea. The second pillar of the Green-Blue Deal is about the River Jordan and the strongly biodiversity-focused. And... You know, this river, wholly to half of humanity, has been turned into little more than a sewage canal, sadly today, much due to the conflict. And partly because of the cooperation that we are seeing moving forward and advances in particularly desalination technology, we now have the opportunity to rehabilitate this river and bring back not only the biodiversity, 50% of the biodiversity that was lost, but also create new economic opportunities for the people of the valley, Palestinian, Jordanian, and Israeli, to withstand the climate crisis by diversifying income sources. Most of the economy around the Jordan Valley is agricultural, and with the climate crisis and less and less precipitation, we need to diversify income sources so that economic stability is maintained. The third pillar of the Green-Blue Deal is moving forward on water issues uh, between Israelis and Palestinians, and that was, in fact, the main focus of the presentation that Ecopeace gave before the UN Security Council just last week, where we highlighted that the rationale as to why water, and this is a complicated issue, but water was seen as a very difficult issue to solve in the mid-1990s when the Oslo Accords were signed between Israelis and Palestinians, because there was only natural water and sharing the water fairly would have produced winners and losers. Well, again, much due to advances in technology, in this case in Israel, in desalination technology, there's no need for winners and losers anymore. We can fairly share the natural water, which means more water going to the Palestinian side and more natural water going to the Palestinian side, and Israelis can increase their desalination, and therefore everyone wins, including the need to, particularly on the Palestinian side, to treat more of the sewage and in that way protect the scarce natural water. And the fourth pillar really encompasses it all because it speaks to education. We need to educate, we need to increase knowledge in our respective societies that the climate crisis requires cooperation, not as a favor. The climate crisis means that if we fail to work with our neighbor, we fail to meet the basic climate resilience that this region will need to survive because the climate crisis really threatens the future survival of all of our peoples here in the Middle East.
6: And can I just add there that this particular approach has actually borne fruit, hasn't it? Because there has been a deal that has been put together between the Israelis, the UAE and Jordan doing exactly that. And I wonder if you could give us a bit of an update. Thomas Friedman this week and his column in the New York Times wrote a little bit about that. And there's some interesting side information on that particular deal as well. He said that it wasn't inked last year because of interference from Saudi Arabia. There has progress been made since then?
3: So a declaration of intent was signed between the parties. And it's truly a breakthrough agreement because for the first time, it's coming and saying that I'm willing to be dependent partially on my neighbour in a neighbourhood where countries have generally seen the neighbour as an enemy. And therefore, why would you want to be partially dependent? But really, the common understanding by all sides that the viability of life is at stake here, that Israel won't be able to meet its climate commitments, Jordan won't be able to sustain sufficient water supplies without working together, without creating this water energy nexus and healthy interdependencies. And we very much it to include also the Palestinians and the broader region, but that breakthrough happened because of a real alignment, the understanding that climate is urgent, a new government in Israel that allowed greater relations um, with the Jordanian king, and the urgency that the climate crisis has brought. And finally, the economic, the fact that the investments here make economic sense. This is not requiring donor assistance. That combination really helped move this deal forward forward very very quickly the governments are still working out the fine details but there's a strong economic and geopolitical engine that's moving this initiative forward because the future of all of the peoples are really at stake to make sure this succeeds thomas friedman's article is very interesting because it frames the issues around climate resistance versus climate resilience and he really speaks to those countries that understand that reaching climate resilience is an issue of national security, are more likely to succeed and take care of the interests of their populations. And those countries that are still stuck, that have their head in the sand, which is very appropriate for the Middle East, and ignore the climate issues and are resistant to the climate issues, are really risking the future of their country and their peoples.
6: Can I just again just ask your views for the Saudi situation because that particular piece reported that the Saudis wanted to derail the deal but in doing so said they'd like to replace Israel as the major player to provide desalinated water to Jordan. Is that sort of competition helpful? Is it sincere?
3: I'm not privy to the thinking of the Saudis in this case but I think that from what I understand perhaps this was healthy competition between Saudi Arabia and the UAE as to who wants to be the regional leader for climate resilience. I think it had less to do with Israel. I think it was more to do with who is going to be the regional leader to advance climate mitigation, particularly. And this agreement suddenly sort of got caught into it. But I'm optimistic that the rationale behind the Saudi concern is a rationale that I think can be moved in a very positive way, because it does speak to an understanding that there is need for great movement in the climate mitigation in the renewable energy and desalination, climate adaptation field. So I do remain hopeful that we can see region-wide cooperation beyond, and here our Green-Blue Deal for the Middle East was originally been heavily focused on, you know, Israeli, Palestinian, Jordanian cooperation, but we always envisioned the Green-Blue Deal as needing to be region-wide. And that's because the climate crisis doesn't hit a particular country only. It hits a particular region in a particular way. And therefore, if the region doesn't respond together, then we're going to see lots of failed states in our region. And that has implications on those countries that are working together because it will diminish their ability to respond to the climate crisis. And Syria is the classic example where state failure leads to massive refugee populations that impacts all of the borders around that country and and even Europe, thousands of kilometers away, because that country failed. So there is a need to expand the Green-Blue Deal, indeed Middle East-wide to include the Euphrates and the Tigris and the Nile Basin, uh, so that we can hope to achieve the level of resilience that is needed for our region, given the extensive hotspot that our region is.
6: So this is something that you briefed to the UN as you previously briefly mentioned. Can we dig a, a little bit deeper into your UN Security Council brief? What kinds of you know international multilateral mechanisms do you think can be used in pursuit of this particular goal?
3: So we think that the UN Security Council has a extremely important role to play to help guide international leadership on the climate crisis. I think the very first thing is that there's an urgent need for the Security Council to recognize that, that the climate crisis is a threat to peace. And that can't be more clearly highlighted than in the case of the Middle East, where water insecurity is an underlying issue for so many of the conflicts in our region, Israeli, Palestinian, but not only, and potentially Iraq, Turkey. Egypt, Ethiopia. So many of the conflicts in our region have an underlying factor of water insecurity. And the climate crisis, in that sense, will be a threat multiplier, will lead to even more severe crisis if countries don't cooperate. And that is the role of the UN Security Council to promote peace. And therefore, we think that the climate And security issues need to be recognized as part of the mandate of the Security Council so that the UN Security Council takes leadership in these issues and helps promote peace globally through climate issues. A second approach which I think has real potential to help bring security to the Eastern Mediterranean is to build on the Eastern Mediterranean Gas Forum, which was built around the concept of moving the natural gas found in the Eastern Mediterranean and potentially selling it on to Europe. But given the climate crisis, we need to increase the mandate. And uh, the Eastern Mediterranean Forum includes interesting countries, Egypt, Palestinian Authority, Jordan, Israel, Cyprus, Greece, and has special status to the European Union in the United States and the UAE. We should be turning that gas forum into an energy, preferably renewable energy and climate security uh, forum that can be the measure or the institution that helps advance exactly the type of issues that EcoPeace has suggested in the Green-Blue Deal.
6: Gidon, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there, but thank you again so much for joining us and for pointing out all of these new
0: and pretty exciting approaches to security and climate that are happening internationally.
3: Thank you very much.
0: That's a wrap on this episode. This week, you heard conversations with Fergus Ryan, Senior Analyst with Aspies International Cyber Policy Centre and Joanna Chu, Senior Journalist for the Toronto Star. Carly Winkler, Senior Analyst with Aspies International Cyber Policy Centre and the Honourable Bonnie Glick, Director of the Centre for Tech Diplomacy at Purdue. Anastasia Kapetis, National Security Editor of The Strategist and Gidon Bromberg, Israeli Director of EcoPeace Middle East. Thanks for listening to Policy, Guns and Money. We'll be back with another episode soon.